Now on Documentary on News Talk, producers Morris Kelleher and Sean O'Boyle explore what happened in 1943 when a physicist asked a big question about biology in What is Life? All life on this planet has something very important in common. DNA. It's packed into every cell of our body, filled with instructions and tools for those cells to do what they need to do. It carries important information from one generation to the next, just as it did from the beginning of life throughout evolution to every living thing on the planet today. We know a lot about how DNA works, and even though there are still lots of interesting things left to discover, we have a good understanding of how DNA shapes us and all the other life on this planet. But it took us a while to get here. Throughout the 90s and until 2003, scientists worked on the Human Genome Project, a collaborative effort to map our DNA, to read every letter. That was a big moment for human genetics. But before that, scientists had to spend decades developing and perfecting the technology we'd need to do that job. They developed new tools that would allow us to look very closely at DNA, to figure out how it stored and used information. In many ways, the biggest moment in our study of DNA happened in 1952, when Rosalind Franklin gave us one of the most important scientific photographs ever taken. Photo 51 was a photograph of DNA taken with x-rays rather than regular light. And that photo revealed that the structure of DNA is a double helix, two strands that wind around each other like a twisted ladder. That was an important thing for us to know before we could do any of the work we ended up doing on DNA. The reason Franklin was so interested in DNA is that scientists were still trying to figure out which of the molecules inside our cells carried our genes. They were trying to figure out what was carrying information from one generation to the next. Where were the instructions for life stored and how did we get them from our parents? How did they change over the history of life to result in the beautiful diversity of life we have on this planet today? That was a big question, exploring the very nature of life. And in the early 1940s, an Austrian physicist who was living and working in Dublin decided to have a go. You might have heard of Schrodinger's cat. It's a thought experiment where an imaginary cat could be both alive and dead at the same time. This was a paradox described by Erwin Schrodinger in the 1930s as part of his research on an area of physics known as quantum theory. In 1939, Schrodinger came to Ireland to work at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. There's a very old dilemma in natural philosophy. Are our bodies and the bodies of the animals, machines, that act of necessity according to their material constitution and under the material influence of the environment, including the impressions on the sense organs? This question, are we automatons, 
has about as often been answered emphatically in the positive as in the negative. Even though he was a physicist, he started thinking about one of the big questions in biology. What is life? What happens in a body, in its cells, to make it alive? And part of that was trying to figure out how genetic information was stored, used and passed along. He shared this research in a series of public lectures at Trinity College Dublin in 1943, and he published them as a book the following year. But this documentary isn't about Schrodinger. It's about how a physicist trying to figure out life helped change how we do science. It's also about what happens when we approach big questions creatively, collaboratively, and with an open mind. So I spoke with three scientists who are doing just that. Fiona Farrelly, Professor of Comparative Immunology in Trinity, and I'm based in um, TBSI, the Trinity Biosciences Institute, where I do research in liver immunology and reproductive immunology and viral infection. I spoke to Professor O'Farrelly about why Schrodinger asking what is life back in 1943 was such a big moment for biology. Some critical things happened around that, around then. First of all, he, he organised to give the lectures and he invited thinkers. So there were actually only three lectures. And then the second thing that happened was that he wrote down his lectures. Nowadays, we sometimes don't do that when you come up with really, uh, when people come up with really clever things, it's sometimes not recorded, but he recorded it. And then a third thing happened. It was going to be published in um, Ireland, th these lectures but um, McQuaid got hold of it. John Charles McQuaid was the Catholic primate of Ireland and Archbishop of Dublin at the time and he had a lot of influence on the Irish government. There was a, a particularly conservative um, Archbishop in power at the time, Archbishop, and he was very, very powerful at the t in the 1940s, 50s, and even later. And he kept an eye on all activities in the country. It was absolutely shocking what was going on. And it's, I think he hears about, because there were some priests at the lecture, he hears about these lectures and then threatens to censor the book. Now, luckily, um, Schrodinger had enough sense to completely ignore him, bypass him and get the book published by um, Cambridge University Press. There were only 500 copies, I gather, of the first edition, but they went, and again, I'd love to have been there when he assembled the, the list, the recipient list. How did he decide? He was just such a smart guy. So this book goes out and really it has an enormous impact for such a tiny, short, little book of very limited um, publication rate or what would you say numbers it had this massive impact and you had a whole lot of mathematicians and physicists who up to then probably might have dismissed problems in biology but because someone of Schrodinger's stature is thinking about it and 
prepared to write about it, they read the book and they suddenly say, oh my gosh, yes, this is an exception, an extraordinary idea. We should be looking for this thing that contains the knowledge, that, that holds the knowledge and replicates the knowledge. And so a whole lot of people came into biology around then to search for um, DNA and, or the, the, and ended up discovering um, DNA and some Watson and Crick um, after their discovery and after they published their paper in Nature describing um, describing the double helix, they wrote a letter to Schrodinger thanking him for the inspiration in his book, for his book and the inspiration. In that same issue of Nature was a paper by Rosalind Franklin, which contained her X-ray photographs of DNA. The much shorter paper by Watson and Crick proposed a model but didn't contain any photographs. And it's widely known now that Watson and Crick had seen Franklin's photo 51 and used it to form their theory on the structure of DNA. First of all, for all of us, DNA, the structure, nucleic acids, the structure of the gene, variation in the gene, and how we now, how we can manipulate um, the genome is, underpins so much of our research and so much of the breakthroughs in, in science. Um, that we become more and more appreciative of the people who thought about it before we knew anything about it. And so this was at the heart of Schrodinger's the lectures that he gave here. He, he wondered, he was a physicist, knew nothing, very little about biology, except he had the perception that information was held and passed on very effectively in biology. And that was his big question. How could information be stored and replicated? And uh, for those of us who kind of know quite a bit about DNA now, it's fascinating to imagine what was it like not to know that. And imagine being so smart as to be able to visualize what it could be. And that's what he did. He said it would be an aperiodic crystal. And that's what DNA is. And so, and he kind of said that in his in in in, a, in his three lectures here in Trinity. The impact of Schrodinger's lectures endured, and the lectures have been celebrated with special conferences at Trinity College Dublin. First, to mark 50 years since the lectures, then most recently for their 75th anniversary in 2018. Um, I'm old enough to have been around um, for the 50, 50th, for the 50th celebration of Schrodinger's lectures, and um, Luke uh, O'Neill and uh, Mike Murphy were both very junior lecturers in biochemistry here in Trinity, and um, they came up with the idea that it had been 50 years since Schrodinger gave his lectures, and they should have something to celebrate it. I was based in St Vincent's at the time, um, running the research labs there, and uh, was so excited with the concept and then with the actual program and so I came in and spent every moment attending it and they had uh, a whole range of Nobel laureates and big thinkers spread over two days and it was it was one of the most exciting things that happened that year that was in 1993 so uh, 25 years later <laughs> Luke and Mike uh, think that we should celebrate 75 years and I'm now based in Trinity and I'm so excited about this idea and want to be involved in helping organise it. Thank you very much and good morning everyone. As Chancellor of Dublin University Trinity College, I'm most delighted and honoured 
to welcome such a distinguished gathering to mark Schrodinger's at 75, What is Life? The Future of Biology. We don't do things by half measures when we welcome people from outside Ireland to Ireland and to Dublin. We say, Ced Mila Folcher, a hundred thousand welcomes. What was very exciting about the 75 year celebration, um, our anniversary since Schrodinger gave his lectures, was having people from really very diverse backgrounds um, uh, talking about the cutting edge of their research. And uh, a recurring theme throughout the meeting and from the speakers, from the audience, from the organisers, from everyone, was just how exciting it was to be able to sit and listen to people from such diverse backgrounds telling us what the most exciting things were that were happening in their fields. And many of us talked about the fact that when we go to conferences in our own fields, we're very, um, of course, we're really interested and fascinated, but often from the point of view of our own experiments, our own papers, our own collaborations and how we might make new ones. Here, everybody was kind of sitting back and letting this wonderful um, newness of, of opinion wash over us and I do think that has to have left a legacy which may be quite difficult to measure but um, the opening up I, I think we could feel almost a physical opening of the mind which you have to think uh, can only be a good thing. By attracting all of those different thinkers um, it just broke open the whole field in molecular biology because you had people coming into biology who um, were not educated in the traditional ways of biology. And so you had a whole different way of thinking. But I do think, and, and this is why it was so, it's so valuable to celebrate his, um, his genius really is because it makes a whole lot of people think about how might we do things differently or, and to look and see where is it being done differently. At the cutting edge of research at the moment are people who have come from different backgrounds. So um, artificial intelligence, for example, or s systems biology, where now we're, we're able, we have the technology to generate huge amounts of data, but we have the store, the computing power to store it and to analyze it. So data is being discovered at a very different level to how I would have done experiments in, in, in my youth, you know, where you take a few cells or a piece of tissue and you look at something. Now you get the masses and masses of data. Um, so the other place where you can see really different, the, the, the kind of um, interdisciplinarity of thinking causing big breakthroughs um, is in um, nanotechnology and um, tissue, tissue development, the fact that we can make new tissues. I mean, you, you, might, you believe that this could actually happen in, in our lifetime. Amazing. One of the things that made What Is Life special is that this was research being shared in a public lecture and in a regular book. Keeping science open and accessible like this is something we do a lot of work on today. But I always think that biology is more difficult to engage people with because it's so messy and so unpredictable, especially compared to physics, which often deals with these big, exciting ideas. 
feeling exactly the opposite because I was about to say um, that one of the reasons why I didn't read Schrodinger's book was because I was useless at physics when I was an undergrad and I failed and I only got through my science degree because I compensated from because of the biology. I always thought I couldn't understand that it was really difficult and I needed other people to explain to me what the so I, what, what, what the concept was so I can get the concept like I've just described about what the brilliant thing that Schrodinger did but don't ask me <laughs> to actually read it itself and understand so I think for me I find physics really impenetrable Whereas I think because biology is around us all the time, you can describe the bread, you can describe the wheat that grew, you can describe the sun, the photosynthesis that gave the energy, and then the energy is in the bread. You can explain it all in steps, you can break it down to steps, in, in steps, that I think um, is immediately applicable to the public. So there's a lot we know about DNA but there's still a lot left to find out. I spoke with Professor Aoife McLeisett from Trinity College Dublin, who is working on some of the biggest questions we still have about DNA. My work is in evolutionary genetics, so what that boils down to in a practical sense most of the time is we're looking at DNA sequences and um, the whole DNA of an organism, the genome. So we look at human and we look at other primates and then other mammals and other animals and fish and weird things with uh, you know lots of teeth and funny places and then out then to other animals like flies and worms and things like this. And the point of trying to compare these is that we would like to understand better how evolution happens is one aspect. We want to understand how is it, what happens actually at a genetic level, because the stuff that changes that makes us different and makes evolution happen is DNA. And what actually happens at a DNA level to give rise to the enormous variety of life that we see. And so that's one question, just what are the processes? And the other aspect is trying to basically read that output and make sense of it and understand it. What I mean there is all of us, so I think it was David Attenborough said this line, so I just steal it freely because it's wonderful, but he basically said that every living thing is a solution to the problem of staying alive. So we're all good solutions to that problem because we all work. Every, every organism is alive in its own way. And so these are all different solutions to that same problem. And by looking at the commonalities and the differences there, we can understand where there's room for maneuver, genetically speaking. It's like, oh yeah, these you can do it this way, you can do it that way, both are good. But then we also see genetically that sometimes things just don't change at all. We see it's always the same no matter where you look. And this is a really strong clue that it can't be any other way because there's been so much time and opportunity for things to be different. If it isn't, it's because it doesn't work. It's because when that happened, this individual just didn't thrive. So natural selection meant that we don't see this anymore. So we are trying to be sophisticated about this and um, looking at the patterns of change with all of these genomes available to us. And um, we're trying to be really clever. I don't want to make it sound too easy, otherwise people are going to think, you know, what's that? Anyone could do that. I'm like, no, no, I'm doing something hard, I promise. But um, we're, we're trying to understand better, you know, where in our genomes are these really crucial points that need to be exactly just so. And because that gives us an insight then into in those cases where somebody does get 
a disease. Maybe it's because something has gone wrong with one of these genes that we know from all of this evolutionary information, we know these are really important to be just right. So it's giving us a different way of approaching, understanding what is happening in healthy versus diseased individuals. The What Is Life lectures did change how the scientific community approached the study of biology, but not always directly. In many ways, it was because these lectures reminded us that it's important to step out of your niche, that really specific area of research you do, and think more broadly about science. So rather than me being directly influenced by Schrodinger and his book, I think I feel more the influence in the magical idea of this open area that you can just go into and make discoveries. And I think that's a period that Schrodinger was living in and just at the beginning of. And I just love the idea of um, exploration and discovery. So that's, I, it's quite an inspiring image of what science can be. Of course, there are there's plenty of days when it's a drudgery, hard work kind of thing, um, but you get through those because you're thinking about this other picture of, you know, maybe I'll find something really interesting. But I do find that very exciting. And, you know, in those days, genetics basically didn't exist. Genetics is a very, very young discipline. So when Schrodinger was giving his lectures, people were still trying to figure out, you know, how might it be possible to transfer information through all of the generations. How could that be encoded? How could it be reliably reproduced every generation? And what might it be? You know, it, even 10 years later when Watson and Crick and Franklin and Wilkins found the structure of DNA, at that point there was still some debate over whether it might be DNA. People had never, even just the idea of what a gene might be. So this whole open field and it was so exciting. And so I kind of wonder what that next thing is going to be. What's going to be the area that we don't quite imagine now that people are still a bit fighting over the importance or the foundational principles. And in 50 years time, it's going to be the big thing that explains everything. You're listening to What Is Life on Documentary on News Talk. What Is Life was about bringing lots of different areas of research together. And that's also what happened at the 2018 conference to mark the 75th anniversary of those original lectures. I spoke with Professor McLeisett about some of the scientists that gathered in Dublin for the occasion. We had a really amazing range of topics. So we had Catherine Holt from Melbourne talking about evolution of bacterial pathogens and antimicrobial resistance. We had Ottilie Leiser from Cambridge University who was talking about plant development and developmental plasticity and the amazing ways that plants grow and how they have used genetics to try and understand that and to really understand the mechanisms. And then we had Michael Rosbash. He and his team discovered the genes that control our circadian rhythm. They did their work in flies 
but what we discover, like we discover so much with genetics and evolution, is that the genes are just the same in humans. So this fly work helped us understand why, you know, why you experience jet lag and all the other things that go along with uh, your circadian rhythm. So it's your your eating habits, your digestion, your immune system. So many things go along. It's not just feeling alert and feeling sleepy. All these other things. So some part of our body are controlled uh, with our daily rhythm. So it's. And it's amazing when you think about it as well, because actually what it all boils down to is responding to the rotation of the planet. And so it's, you know, so, and it's, and for that reason, it's one of the most, um, the strongest commonalities across all life forms. So even see in bacteria, they also have a kind of a circadian rhythm. And it's like all the things, if you think about how this planet has changed over the enormous amounts of times there has been life here, you know, so it goes from basically uh, an atmosphere that didn't really have oxygen to a very oxygen rich one to all kinds of plants and water. All these things have really, really dramatically changed. The continents have moved. But one thing that's never changed in all that time is the rotation. Every day begins with dawn and ends at dusk. And so it's something that's common, uh, you know, across all life, which is kind of cool. This all highlights the importance of crossing disciplines, of sharing knowledge and tools across different areas of science. Um, very early in my scientific career, when I was first attending conferences, one of the first conferences I ever attended was um, attended by mathematicians and biologists. So I was one of the few biologists there. And when mathematicians try to approach genomics, they always make idealized situations, which is what you do if you're a mathematician, right? So the circle is an idealized situation. But in their idealized situations, you say, well, it, you, you can identify these, you can identify the corresponding genes, you know the places, you, you know the relationships, and you start from there and most of the challenge in what we do is actually in all of that mess trying to understand things because biology is quite messy and there's lots of ways around things so um, yeah so this is where the the biologist has to come in and I go it's not quite so simple but we have a lot of fun in the sense of it becomes an interesting intellectually engaging problem to try and understand what's going on when we have just even, for example, there's so many copies of genes in our genome that there's extra copies of. And um, that makes it harder to understand how important any one of those is, or are they all equally important? Then only 2% of what our genome, so the human genome, only 2% of it looks like it's genes doing stuff for us. And the rest of it, you know, it's all kinds of everything. Um, it's drastically dwarfed by the 8% which is left over from viral infections of, of many, 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 many million years ago. But, um, you know, so 2% are human genes and 8% are leftover viruses. So um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big mess in there, but um, that it's very interesting because sometimes that 8%, which are just the leftover junk from previous infections, somehow get recycled into being actual genes. And that's, it's interesting to understand and to figure that stuff out. We're trying to understand some fundamental principles in what are the constraints operating on how genes can and cannot evolve and change over time. And I have a few ideas about that. And it's, first of all, it's exciting to have an idea. And second, it's exciting to get the chance to test it. And so that's what we're doing for the next few years. And one idea is that it's basically to do with um, how the resources of the cell are allocated. So. When you, if you think, just think of a cell as a little bubble, that's okay for a moment. And so obviously that's a finite thing and it's got finite resources there. So you need to make sure those resources are distributed appropriately for whatever cell type that is. It's got to be doing a lot of this and less of that, whatever that 
cell is. So when you make a change in the genetics, that might mean that some gene gets either cranked up higher or extra copies of it. That might be drawing resources away from the important things in that cell. So even though the important things are still there, and on the face of it, nothing has happened over here, they stop working properly because of something that's happened over there. And that's kind of the way we're trying to look at these constraints on evolution and then on the functioning of the cell. So it's kind of looks like a bit like an incidental effect, like nothing has happened here, why isn't it working properly anymore? And you kind of need to take a step back and think of it in a slightly bigger picture. So it sounds plausible to me, <laughs> and I hope I made it sound plausible, but um, that's what we're trying to look at now. We're trying to understand that. And I'm, I'm excited about that because in my little world, that would explain a lot of observations that at the moment are considered totally independent and unconnected. So this would link a lot of these things together. Actually, all of these things make sense under this same model. So in a sense, it could be a keystone. So, you know, if it works, it'd be great. If it doesn't work, I suppose I just have to keep moving on because that's what we do. Looking at DNA is helping us understand the chemistry of life and the information stored in our genes. But it's also helping us figure out how we might live longer, healthier lives. I spoke with Professor Emma Teeling from University College Dublin. So I was very lucky to get a European Research Council grant to try and study bats because they don't age or they should. They seem to evolve mechanisms to slow down the aging process. But if we want to try and understand what bats do to slow down aging, we have to study how their cells and their genes and their physiology changes over time. And typically most aging studies are done in the lab. You have a model organism, it's born in the lab, it dies in the lab. You study this individual as they age over time. But with these long-lived bats, you can't do that. You can't keep them in the lab. They only have one baby every year. To try and study ageing in bats, you have to go out and you have to capture them in the field. You have to go to a place where they come back to year after year after year after year so you can catch the same individual. You have to be able to mark them. You have to be able to take a sample that's not going to kill them because you want, to, you want them to live longer, so you can't do lethal sampling. And so what we had to do is we had to pick a species of bat that's long-lived, that was big enough that I could take a little bit of blood, about 140 microliters, which really is about two or three drops of blood, be able to do a little bit of wing, and be able to recatch the same individuals every single year. And the one place that we were able to do this in was in France, in Brittany, working with these myotis myotis bats. These are these greater mouse-eared bats, um, because this grassroots organization had been studying this population for 20 years and they had tagged them, so they caught individuals and they put little transponders like microchips in them on the year they were born, because you can know a, a young bat, their finger bones aren't fused. After the first year, fused. You've no idea how old they are. And we had this fantastic population. So what we do is we pack up a movable lab from UCD. And myself and my absolutely amazing research team drive from Dublin down to Wexford in the van with all of our equipment. We drive, take the ferry over to France, drive down from Roscoff or Cherbourg down to Rennes, past Rennes, into a place, we stay in a place called Le Vrecois. Um, it's in Morbihan department. And what we do is every year we catch the same individuals. And it's very hectic and very crazy. It happens over the weekend because we need these volunteers to pretend we want. So we catch over 700 bats, 400 to 700 bats over the course of the summer if we can, as many of them as is possible. They're measured, they're weighed, and we take a subset of these, we take a sample. A little bit of blood, a little bit of DNA. 
and we flash freeze those. So what happens is we take the sample and then we immediately stick it into like liquid nitrogen to freeze it so that it's frozen in all time. And what we do is we take those samples back to my lab in UCD and we've worked out the different methods to be able to sequence the entire transcriptome from the blood, which is a good physiological marker of overall health of these bats, using new next generation sequencing technologies. We also look at telomere length, we're able to grow cells from these little wing punches and make these viable cell lines in the lab. So every year what we do is we go down to France, we spend three weeks to a month there depending on what's the weather like, if our bats are too fat, too skinny or the baby's born, mother nature dictates what's going to happen and we catch the same individuals. And We've been doing this now for about six years, we had funding from the ERC and I have funding from the Irish Research Council, a Larry grant to keep going and so the idea is to follow the babies that were born in 2013 for the course of their life which is up to 38 years. And so we've got to keep going. And what we're trying to do is see what happens at the molecular level. That bats, what do they do to slow down the aging process? And we've kind of found some pretty cool things. In the preface of the What Is Life book, Schrodinger talks about how a scientist is supposed to have a complete and thorough knowledge at first hand of some subjects, but how they're not expected to move beyond those subjects. Now, he didn't agree with that. And there are some areas of science that naturally cross those boundaries. I'm a zoologist and I'm also a geneticist. And really what zoology is, is studying the animal kingdom from so many different integrated levels. From looking at different types of animals, how they evolved, what are their different attributes, their morphological characters, their molecular characters, how they move, how they interact with each other in their environment, and what are their underlying genes and genomes that allow them adapt the way they have. So zoology is very important. It's all encompassing. And even more important is that we are part of the animal kingdom. So if we want to understand ourselves and how we evolve and how we adapt and how we are supposed to respond to things, you've got to study animals. I asked Professor Teeling about the big questions that her research might contribute to in the future. So healthy ageing is one. Um, well, there's lots of things that bats do that I'm interested in, but if, we'll talk about this for now. And so if you think about it, healthy ageing is a, a problem for society. So everywhere, the populations are ageing. We're able to live way longer than we used to be able to live for. It's estimated that individuals born today will live till they're 150. The problem is that your chance of acquiring disease of the old age has stayed the same, which is about 60. Like as we hit 60, we have a really, really high chance of having Alzheimer's, diabetes and so forth. But modern technology can still keep you alive. And so do you really want to live from 60 to 150 incapacitated? No. So what we need to do is we need to match our health span with our lifespan. And bats seem to have evolved natural abilities to have way longer health spans than would be expected. So what bats can do, and the bat that holds the record, again, was caught as an adult, was caught about 43 years later now, tagged, no signs of ageing. If you're to correct for body size, this bat weighs about a third of a mouse. Shouldn't be doing that. They live for the equivalent of about 250 human years. No signs of ageing. So they hold these secrets. So I think that if we can study bats, we can work out what needs to happen, really at a cellular level, that allow us to extend our, our, our health span. And someone says, well, how are you going to translate what's in a bat into humans. Well, potentially we could go and do genetic modification or hearing some of these talks today, actually maybe we don't need to do that. All we seem to do is maybe need the right drugs to modify the pathways. They're the same pathways. We just maybe need to overexpress certain genes that bats do to stop 
damage that causes aging. And now we'll have drugs that potentially can do this. So I think the future could be very bright and I'm quite excited by this meeting actually. So first of all, I want to thank the organizers. I feel so privileged to be able to share this stage with some of my scientific heroes. And what I want to do today is I want to talk to you about how studying some of the diverse, wonderful animal creatures that we have on this planet can allow us find solutions to some of society's greatest problems and therefore make human life better. And also, it can allow us understand our place in the diversity of life on this planet. What makes us human? What makes us different from the other animals? How have we evolved? Now, what we have done as zoologists is try to understand the past by looking at the present. And typically, zoologists use the tools that were at hand at the time. And they wanted to understand what type of animals were humans most like. They used comparative anatomy, looking at bone structure. Comparative physiology, where do the different muscles interact? Where do the different processes, are they similar in a human or a chimp or a cat or an echinoderm or starfishes? How do we all relate to each other? And looking at morphology and anatomy and physiology has its restrictions because what is the same character in all these different organisms that we can now trace its evolution? So it's difficult. And this is where I get on to Schrodinger and what is life. So I've read this book and there are certain lines that really, I suppose, appeal to me as a zoologist and a geneticist. And the first of this is on page 20. These chromosomes contain in some kind of code script the entire pattern of the individual's future development and functioning. It is solidity on which we draw to account for the permanence of the gene. So we believe a gene to be an aperiodic solid. That's cool. This is one of the, at the time, this was in early 1940s, Schrodinger was thinking about what was life? How could life be contained? How was it replicated? How was it coded? And I think really what happens is that at that time, there was some form of science consciousness that was happening. Because in the 10 years before and 10 years after, many researchers were beginning to understand that it was DNA, potentially not protein, that was inherited. And that a lot of this work by Chagraff, by Avery, by Mendel, and then by these four people who really brought this consciousness to a head. James Watson, Francis Crick, Rosalind Franklin, Morris Wilkins, an integration of physicists, biologists and chemists, and they were able to really bring all of this scientific consciousness to a head and discover, of course, DNA. Back to the impact and the legacy of what is life. I said this isn't a documentary about Schrodinger or who he was as a person, because history is filled with scientists who were just as brilliant, but perhaps not as famous. Instead, we're tracing the impact this moment had on the rest of science, when a physicist started thinking about biology. And there are lots of scientists doing the same thing today, by collaborating with researchers from other fields. If you think about how was DNA really discovered, and I said in my talk before, so Schrodinger was a physicist who started to think about how could life be so faithfully replicated? This goes against all the laws of thermodynamics. This shouldn't be possible. But Mother Nature had found a way. And a lot of people are coming together. You have a science consciousness, I think, and I use that word in my talk, that what happens is people are starting to think. And people from all around the world are reading different ideas. And 
different researchers seem to think, oh, I, I could address it this way, and maybe I could address it that way, and I could do something different. And for example, we're thinking about immunology, some of the work that I've, I've worked with Luke O'Neill on, create, look at the immune system in bats, things I could never do before. And you work with the, the physicists think about how echolocation possibly has evolved. And I think that when you bring lots of multidisciplines together, and people are excited about their work, hearing that talk on the future of chemistry, this is where I'm thinking, oh, that's how we could do some drug discovery. So I think what happens if you put a bunch of people who are very passionate about their subject and, and creative people in a room together and let them talk and discuss and have these brainstorms about what they find exciting, they're like, oh, maybe I could use my method to do this. And you get ideas just hearing other people explain things so well. So I think that the future is integrative. I mean, think about how really DNA was discovered. It's through chemistry, through physics, and through biology. And right now, I think what's happening, especially with modern students, modern biological students, is that those different, I suppose, barriers and walls are being kind of washed down a bit. You've got biochemists, you've got biophysicists, you've got, you know, think about the future of when to leave this planet and go off to space. You're gonna have everybody working together. And really to try and understand how life works. How do different, how did life evolve? How does life work? How do we interact? How can we make our life much better? So science, we're coming up with solutions. You know, you need to imagine the unimaginable. That's what you can do. And, and I think something like today where you are inspired by one of the great thinkers of all times who's Schrodinger, this allows you to think, actually, maybe that idea isn't so nuts. Maybe I will explore it. And you're given, I suppose, nearly you're given permission because you have these great philosophers like Daniel Bennett talk about, okay, let's just try that. It'll probably be wrong, but you know what? Let's think about it and try it. So I think this is why this stuff is so important. I want to return now to the question of what is life? Because it's not like it was answered. How are we thinking about that question now? I think it's by thinking about death. Um, and there's the most wonderful piece of prose written by Miroslav Holub, who was, um, who was the Czech Republic's most famous poet um, in the 20th century. And he was also a really famous immunologist because he described the nude mouse, which us immunologists are really fascinated about because it doesn't have a thymus. But he wrote a wonderful piece where he came uh, it's about a roadkill he came across an animal that was dead had just been killed on the uh, on the road and there was bright red blood the blood was still flowing and because he was an immunologist he knew that in this blood that there were um, white cells that if he really wanted to he could pick up and culture in his lab and they would be alive but the animal was actually dead and I think anybody can understand that you know, a, 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 an eight-year-old child, you would be able to explain that the living... So what is it that's alive about the cells? It's because it's a living, breathing, replicating thing. But, but the, where the problem arises there is about personhood, which is a very, very different concept. You're asking about life. And uh, it's quite obvious that those cells are fantastically attached to life. They are... Uh, and... Again, like that creature that was dead on the on the side of the road, and if you you know when something is dead, something is dead, and this is what's so shocking when you're there for the death of a human. 
the, the human, this comes back to, um, the, the, again, it, it, of course it is magic. What actually is it when you're looking at the person drawing their last breaths? But their stay are still there. Somehow they are still there. And then the breath stops. And again, you know, you could take some of those cells and you could keep them alive. In fact, we take the organs from that person that we know that liver can, their liver can live for 30 years. But they are dead. And so that gives us something to focus on. What's a process in the brain, in the mind, that we can study so that we can better understand what makes us a person? For lots of scientists, that process is memory. Personhood, what is the person? You know, um, hundreds of years ago we talked about a soul, the soul, and that's what somebody said was gone when the person breathed their last. The soul was gone. Where is it? What is it? This tangle that is in the mush of our brain to think that that actually produces uh, a person. And, and what, what is a person? And we know being able to compute and being able to think and being able to visualize all of these things. Um, but memory has to be, is, is, is something that the neuroscientists are working so hard on because creatures as simple as a goldfish or a, a spider have some semblance of a memory. And it's just so fascinating to think of similar processes helping uh, a, a bee <laughs> remember where the pollen is and being able to communicate that to um, somebody like you being able to put this program together and remember this whole us being able to remember this amazing event and um, what is life and discuss it all now and how much it all happened and what is it that's going on in your head and my head that actually has captured a, only a tiny part of that fantastic event. What is Life was produced by Morris Kelleher and Sean O'Boyle and was supported by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland as part of the Sound and Vision Scheme.